Hello, Betfolio Voice friends. You're back again, and I'm so happy that you are for part two of the discussion among myself, Dr. Dana Varble, and vet students Amelia and Kayla. I know I said I'd keep the last intro brief and uh, failed miserably at actually doing that, so here is attempt number two. Let me introduce you to everyone. Amelia Matzik is a third-year veterinary student at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. She grew up in Pennsylvania and eventually moved to Chicago to attend Loyola University and pursued a degree in forensic science. She's gained veterinary experience all over the world, including South Africa and Thailand, further fueling her interest in exotic animal practice and wildlife research and rehabilitation. Caitla Wildblood is also a third-year veterinary student in Scotland at the University of Glasgow. She's from California and earned her bachelor's degree in animal science with a minor in equine science from Cal Poly. She's interested in mixed animal practice with her primary focus being equine and a splash of small animal medicine. And then there's Dr. Dana Varble, Chief Veterinary Officer for the NABC. She earned her DVM from the University of Illinois in 2003. She earned her DVM from the University of Illinois in 2003, where her non-traditional clinical rotation schedule allowed her to fulfill clinical requirements in multiple locations, including the University of Illinois, the University of Tennessee, Louisiana State University, Brookfield Zoo, and the University of Pretoria. She's practiced in clinical medicine, in exotic pet practice, small animal general practice, and emergency medicine, and is still a practicing veterinarian. She's a nationally and internationally recognized speaker and author, particularly in the areas of herpetological and exotic animal medicine and surgery. She joined the NAVC in 2015 and, with some stops along the way, is now Chief Veterinary Officer for the NAVC. Our conversation was lots of fun and I loved hearing all the different perspectives on veterinary medicine. Okay, I think that was relatively brief. Let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, so thank you for joining us for this second episode where we're talking to Dr. Dana Varble and then Amelia and Kayla have joined us again to continue our discussion about vet students and their paths through school. We have just had such a good time uh, with this discussion and talking to each other that we figured we would keep it going and thought you guys might enjoy it too. So let's jump in. Thanks for being willing to have us back again. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Oh, thanks for coming back. I mean, truly, I'm so glad we could do this again. It was so much fun the first time around. I was sad to have to cut it off. It's always interesting to hear. I love talking to students. I always have because I think it's interesting. I mean, if anything helps keep you aware of how vet med is changing, it's to talk to students every few years and see what their thoughts are and how their perspectives change. Because I do feel like every every time I talk to students, something new pops up, some sort of new new advantage and but new challenges too. So I mean, what it's going to be a couple of years at the most and you're going to be here, you know, and you'll be talking to another, I know (laughs) you guys just saw Amelia's face. It was hilarious. Um, but it is really funny because like one of my mentors, um, and I, I'm not sure if you guys have met him, um, Dr. Mark Mitchell always, he'd always refer to us as Dr. You know, whatever your last name was. And it was funny because the first few times he referred to me that I'm like, Oh, don't, don't call me Dr. Varble. You know, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not used to it yet. It's he's like, but you will be. So why not <laughs> so now? Let's get and, started. <laughs> and I was always like, that's nerve wracking. Okay. But it's true. He was right. You know, that's, I mean, it's only a few years before, you know, what you guys are doing, what you're experiencing is going to be just as much a part of the profession as everybody else. So it's good. Yeah. In the moment, it definitely feels like it is taking so long to get there. And that, because becoming a veterinarian is something that I've wanted to do, like literally since the age of four. Um, I mean, I have the papers from like kindergarten when you have to write down, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up and like all about you and everything. And I, you can see in my four-year-old handwriting, you know, veterinarian. So I've been wanting to get to, you know, this point for so long. And now it's, it feels like it's, uh, I I still have another, the two years to go, but I know it's going to fly by because where I was two years ago, feels like yesterday. So it's uh, exciting, but very scary at the same time to know that in just a couple of years, I'll be a, be a doctor also. (laughs) 
I love that you referenced your four-year-old handwriting. I have a four-year-old and uh, she recently was like student of the week. And one of the questions they ask her is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you guys think I'm going to say veterinarian. I'm not. She said she wanted to be Darth Vader. <laughs> oh my gosh, Solid second awesome. choice. Solid second choice. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure how to feel about it. I was like a little proud, a little concerned, but that's kind of sums up my relationship with my four-year-old anyway. So. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, Dana, I don't know if you ever get used to being called doctor because have you had the experience where you call in to the clinic, maybe on a day that you're not working and he you know, you don't want to be like, Hey, it's Dr. Fleming calling in. I'm not, I'm not that cocky. Um, and so not that it is. So you call and you're like, Hey, it's Cassie. I just had a question about this. And you go on for like a couple of minutes. And finally, whoever you're talking to is like, who are you? <laughs> but mostly, yes, mostly with the, um, with the emergency clinic because the shifts are so different. So you don't always work with people on different shifts because when I worked at ER, I worked mid shifts and night shifts. So the people that like roll in at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., especially like the our customer service reps have no clue who I am. They have no clue. <laughs> They're like finishing their day when I got in and I'd call in and be like, hey, it's Dana. And they, you know, I'd be like, hey, can I talk to so-and-so in the back? And they'd be like, uh, what's your pet's yeah. name? And I'd be like, <laughs> And of course, if you're really not paying attention, you're like, um, my dog's name is Hannah. And they wait, 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 but that's no, she's not there. Hold on. Wait, let me restart over. And you have to like, then you have to go back. You have to give context to like the whole, <laughs> okay, wait, I'm Dr. Dana Varble. I work there sometimes. I'm trying to call this person because of this reason. Can I talk to him, please? <laughs> Back to question number one. Yeah. I mean, luckily, Amelia knows our, our exotics clinic is so small. Like, you know, I could probably call them and be like, yo, what's up? And they'll be like, Dana, what? <laughs> totally different. I just, I just have this vivid memory of when I first started working there, because at the time I was only part-time and you were also only part-time. So for the first couple months, I maybe ran into you twice because I was working while I was that, doing yeah. undergrad. And I just remember I was working the front desk and you called and you were like, Hey, it's Dana. Can I like talk to Steph? And I was like, I'm so, who are you? <laughs> and, and you were like, it's Dana. Who are you? And I was like, this is Amelia. <laughs> and you were like, who's Amelia? <laughs> like, it was a circular conversation for a full 30 seconds. Going nowhere. <laughs> I also always have this panic moment that I think, did I dial the right number? Am I on the phone with like, somebody at their house right now and they're just and I'm going on and on about who I need to talk to in the back and they're like dude no <laughs> yeah very long story short. so speaking yes. of circular conversations you never totally get used to being called doctor <laughs> <laughs> yeah how how do you deal with that I guess imposter syndrome of you know, because obviously like right out of school, I know, you know, that I'm sure I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, you know, I, <laughs> how have I graduated? You know? <laughs> um, but how do you, how do you deal with those feelings, you know, a couple of years out from, from school? Well, one, it doesn't go away. I was going to so, say, I'm going to let you answer, start this one off. Cause I, I still do. It doesn't go away. I mean, in a way, like, I mean, veterinary medicine is so like, it is also advancing so quickly. So I think part of it too, is you're always like, oh, do I know enough about the subject? Do I know the latest? Do I know the best way to handle this? You know, I know what I think I know, but is that really like every year new drugs come out, new methods come out, new techniques come out. So I think some of it is just realizing you don't necessarily need to know everything, but you need to know who to call, where to look it up, what, what to do, and then stop looking behind you when someone says, Hey, doctor, um, <laughs> is also, that's like pro tip, you know, stop like frantically turning around and going, wait, 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 oh, me, me, you mean me. <laughs> and I'll say this at different practices have really different cultures surrounding this. So like some are really casual and like, hey, you is fine. And I don't, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not the type to be like, oh, yeah, don't call me. Hey, you. Um, one of the clinics I worked at was really adamant. A um, medical director there really liked the doctors to be called doctor, you know, doctor last name. So it was really funny there to, when we were, when we were feeling casual at that practice, they called me, they just called me Varble. And it is really funny because I'm still friends with a couple of texts from there. And I've never heard them call me Dana, not once. 
Like I'm verbal to them. That's the way it is. It's hilarious. I'm like, oh, cool. All right. I can roll with that. But it, and other practice cultures are just, they're a little bit looser. The text would be more, or, and the assistants would be good about introducing me as Dr. Varble to the clients. And then in the back being like, Hey, Dana, what's up? You know? So a lot of variation there, but I think some of it too, is just at some point you realize you're not going to know everything. So eh, it is what it is. Can I sneak in another question? Yes. So, so uh, do, do you think that it matters um, how you present to your, yourself to clients with regards to calling yourself, you know, Dr. Uh, Dr your last name versus saying you doctor your first name versus do you think that that matters at all with with new clients or so I'd be interested to hear Cassie's take on this because we have worked in such different areas of the country and I have noticed there's some there's regional and probably international differences (laughs) when I've presented internationally I've definitely certain places are a lot more Dr. Varble Dr. Varble and you know then you go to Australia and everyone's first name Every, they just mm-hmm. they are. they're very <laughs> casual it's not a sign of disrespect by any means that's just what they are and I have certainly noticed that some clients actually respond better when you're a bit more casual they feel like they can talk to you and relate to you you don't seem like the white coat effect sometimes intimidates certain people mm-hmm. and again I think it's it's cultural it's it's different but like one of my favorite practice cultures was like, they were really casual. Was it, it was out West. So I will preface it by that. The geography, the geography of, you know, and the culture of that area was, was a bit looser. And like, we had no real like dress code per se. And now granted, I never showed up in sweatpants and a t-shirt just to challenge it for fun. But like, I routinely wore like jeans and a button down shirt um, into work every day and had more luck I felt like could be more myself and communicated with clients much easier than if I was wearing a white coat and scrubs. But, you know, I think you're going to find that there's pretty different geography. And I always love talking, you know, Kayla, I, I know you really like this. Our mixed animal folks are always like, yeah, I'm just happy if I don't smell real bad. There's like a whole different, like looks and how you present yourself are very different in you know, in a, especially in a mobile or even, but even in a clinic, large animal practice, like, you know, no one's expecting them to not have mud on their shoes. It's just the way it is, you know? I've gone to wearing, I'm most comfortable when I'm working in scrubs in a clinic. That's um, where I feel like I can kind of feel like myself. And then if somebody passes me like, you know, a bloody dog or, you know, something that has poop all over it, then I'm not like, you know, how do I, you know, I still am a little bit, but you know, I'm a lot more, okay. You know, it's easier to get dirty and stuff like that. And I just, I feel that's, that's where I feel comfortable as far as like presenting myself to clients. I've only worked in the Southeast. Um, so I don't have like the, the diversity in my experience. I feel like lately I've been introducing myself as Dr. Fleming, but the primary reason is, is I've had a couple things happen. What I used to do is say, Hey, I'm Cassie Fleming. I didn't care what they called me, you know, doc, Cassie Fleming, Fleming dot, whatever. It did not matter. And and I'm still fine with that. But I've had a couple of cases of one, apparently my first name is hard to understand and repeat back, especially with a mask on. So I get called like Cassidy and Casey and Kathy. And so, so I was like, all right, man, we just, I don't want to like have spend five minutes of our time, like just you figuring out what my name is. Um, so <laughs> that made me kind of go to Dr. Fleming. And then the other thing is I've, I had people ask me like halfway through the conversation, they would be like, I'm sorry, who are you? Like, are you the doctor? And I was like, oh, yes, I'm sorry. Like, yes, I'm the doctor. So I still don't, you know, plenty of people down here, uh, like doc is really common. Mm-hmm. You know, like, hey, doc, you know, how's it going? I, I don't care what people call me as long as I don't introduce myself to the doctor. And then you turn around and go, oh, hi, Miss Fleming. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> we're going to use titles. Like, <laughs> what mine is. Yeah. Back that train out. But in general, I don't care. But I've gone to introducing myself as doctor just because I've noted some confusion. And I wonder if some of that will go away when we get away from curbside and it's not like this weird exchange and they can kind of see the flow of the appointment and stuff like that. Uh, so it is interesting because I almost do the same. I always introduce myself as Dr. Dana Varble. And then I kind of let the clients 
first of all, and it's bad, but 90% of them forget your name immediately. Yes. Oh yeah. At the end, they're like, what was your name again? Yeah. They're like, who, 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 <laughs> Which I do the same thing. Like yeah. no judgment. <laughs> yeah. It's because it, it, especially with curbside, it is really hard. Like they're, they're not focused on your name. They're focused on hearing that everything is good or everything is bad or you know, here are your options. And I get it. I, I'm not, I don't sweat it that much. <laughs> I mean, speaking of curbside, how do you think that once COVID kind of settles down, how do you foresee vet meds swinging back? Or do you foresee some clinics kind of staying in the curbside direction? I mean, I want to go back. I know I'm probably in the minority there. Um, cause a lot me of people too, like curbside. Too. you do too. Okay. That I, makes me feel yeah. better, but man, it's like to have a dog, which first of all, if there are pet owners listening, animals are doing amazing in the clinic. Like do not stress about your animal. We love them and are taking great care of them. And the stress level for the animals, I think is so much lower because the clinic's quiet, there's less going on. Um, and we can just kind of get them in and out. So no worries there, but you know, if you have a pet and you find a lesion and then to try to go out to the car and like describe that to the owner and be like, you know, this one spot on his side kind of low, but it's where that Brown spot. And it's really hard. So man, I can't wait for, can you just stand there in the room with me and let me say, see this spot, we should do something about this spot. Yeah. So I'm going to be, we are probably both in the minority, I guess, because so, you know, and, and Amelia knows is where we practice. There's no way I'm going and standing out in that parking lot and shouting we were it's a lot of the trucks and yeah it's a busy street I would it would literally be me standing outside their car screaming at them and it would not be like there's no way that would be ineffective it's like a no win because you can either go out and scream but you at least get the body language and stuff like that or you can talk over the phone yeah you lose all all nonverbal communication and oh yeah by the way we're veterinarians that's what we do is (laughs) nonverbal communication (laughs) yeah it's true and so for me, you know, I, I see it, I, I think it'll probably be really gradual. I think it'll be single clients, exam rooms only. Um, I just had this conversation with someone in a different interview, media interview. I don't know that waiting rooms will ever be utilized in the same way again. And, you know, in retrospect, it's not really a great place. I no. mean, there's a bunch of animals in there. Dogs are barking, stressing they're anxious. They're just, yeah, the clients are stressing each other out. I mean, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen a client that's angry or distraught standing in a waiting room, feeling very exposed with all these people around staring at them, you just start to wonder, like, who is this? What What is this waiting room? Is it doing any good for anyone? Right. So, the clients is not good for the patients. It's really not good for us. I mean, do or the bit. like yeah. the walk through the <laughs> lobby. And I mean this with the best of intentions, but like, I just got to walk through the lobby to tell the receptionist something. Oh, Hey doc, while you're here, let's sit in. Then like 10 minutes later, you're like, Oh no, I'm so bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, just, it's easier for me. Like it, you know, you can't have communication with clients up there. There's too much going on. They're distracted. Um, it's not a great use of space. Like I'd much rather throw another exam room up there or do something else or you know I just think there's better use of you know vet clinics are small and I'm just not sure that that's ever going to be a great use of space again I think if they Mm -hmm. come back they're gonna be tiny 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 rooms I hadn't Um, thought of like just you know kind of doing away with most of the waiting room experience completely mm -hmm. but I think I mean that sounds like a great idea to me (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's so much more comfortable to hang out in your, I mean, at least for me, like I definitely feel that it might be more comfortable to, you know, hang out in your car and listen to your music or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, um, when, uh, you know, when it's your, your turn, your time to go in, then, you know, obviously you go and be, I agree that doing away with waiting rooms would be not a bad idea. And not to mention too, the, um, potential for, for, uh, spreading disease too, between obviously between animals to animals, but also mm-hmm. between people to people. And mm-hmm. this, like even in human waiting rooms, uh, you know, going to the doctor and everything. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's not a place I like to hang out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how many talks are there out there about how to make your waiting room and, you know, a nicer, happier, more calming place? Like mm-hmm. that's a mm-hmm. great idea. I know how to do it. Just let me sit in my car and watch yeah. Netflix or something. <laughs> no, you just can't. I mean, no one is really relaxed out there. Maybe I mean, like, good. especially in like the exotic stuff, cause you have a macaw beak trim going on in the back. And so the macaw is 
screaming. screaming. <laughs> and you yes. have four rabbits in the waiting room who are now utterly panicked because it went from being like five decibels to 275. Yes, whose white blood cell counts will normalize in approximately six hours. And that yes. there's actually science to show that. Like their white blood cell counts are not going to be normal today. They just won't. So great. That won't affect anything except for, yeah, most of what we're doing. So cool. You know, oof, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, you know, I think, I think clients really want it back. I think they like that one-on-one. I think they like body language. I'll say like this the other day, I was really bummed. I couldn't show a client an x-ray in person. It's just mm-hmm. a minor thing. Right. But it's so much nicer to have them in the room and be like, can you see how this is shaped? And let me explain to you why it's different and what that means. I think when you can, like you were talking about Cass, like showing them a lump or a lesion or a mass or how it's affecting their, their pet. I think that's so much more real to the clients then because mm-hmm. it's, it's not just words. You right. Know, we talked about names going in and out of heads, terms going in and out of heads, but pictures, they stick around. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. I mean, I, I can't wait for us to go back to normal. I think that vet med is so much as much it is, as it is animal relations, it's still 90% dealing with people and without being able to make those connections. I feel like even though a lot of clinics have seen huge spikes in client numbers during the pandemic, you haven't really been able to make that doctor patient relationship. That's going to make them want to come back and see you and make sure that everything's still going to plan because they haven't really seen what you're doing when their pet's inside. So they might not really get the connection of why it is so important to come in for annuals. You know, to add to that too, I think, I think you're right, Amelia. I think that's when, I think that's when relationships are formed. I think that's when clients get attached to their veterinarians. And it's one of the things that it's almost like a weird art form. And you're not, I'm going to warn you, you're not perfect at it when you get out of school, but all of a sudden you start to pick up little cues and people's Mm -hmm. body language and other things. And, and then all of a sudden they don't, just see you guys as a medical provider. They see you as their vet. Mm-hmm. And when you become theirs, it, it's a double-edged sword. Don't you? Like, <laughs> you, they, you become theirs. They, they like, well, will I mean, these are the people that bring you cookies at Thanksgiving when you're trying to lose weight, but also <laughs> like send you, send you flowers and, and do wonderful things for you. But they're also the ones that call, you know, at 3am and are wondering why you're not up waiting for them. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and, and most people have good boundaries. I say that you know, knowing that 90% of our clients out there really do have good boundaries. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. Definitely. I, I like having clients in the room and, and talking to them and, um, transitioning in the, to a new hospital in the middle of a pandemic where you're curbside, that's been an experience of like, try getting people to trust you in that scenario is it's hard, but I feel like throughout the course of this, we've heard, you know, stories about damaged relationships between veterinarians and owners and um, just, you know, not being able to connect and bad things happening as a result. And, you know, then we lead into mental health in the profession and stuff like that. I feel like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, that nonverbal communication, like you were talking about picking up on those little cues and, and, and practicing that weird art form is such a big part of the job. And that just like went away cold turkey. And all of us clients and vets and, you know, technicians, CSRs, everybody, we're all kind of left going, okay, what do we do now? And I wonder if that's where some of that comes from. I think also part of it is like, if you talk about, especially for the phone or the clinics that are doing phone consultations, it becomes so much of the, what you wouldn't say to someone face-to-face versus what you would say to someone through a screen or online, the margins are just ever expanded. And I don't think that I'm in excellent communicator by any means, but generally speaking, I've never really had client relation issues. But over this past summer, when I was working, I got my head chewed off about four times when I, I literally didn't do anything different than what I would have normally done. And it was, yeah, I mean, I just, I think that that nonverbal and just having someone actually in front of you really makes a huge difference. So this is a great example, but like you pick up on so many cues when you're going over like a treatment plan. And if you're, unfortunately, if you get stuck doing estimates as a vet, like you'll bring up something and you'll watch people's reactions. And if they're excited, they'll, you know, they do all the nonverbal things. They lean in, they look at you, they're, they're nodding. They're all, they're doing all those things. Whereas if all of a sudden they start to 
to pull away. Their shoulders get hunched. They start to like, all of a sudden their shoes become the most fascinating thing in the room. Or some of them just start, they start crying. You can't hear it. They start crying though. You know right away. I mean, this isn't, you don't have to be a genius to figure out something's wrong. Wait, hold on. Now I propose this idea to you. You're clearly, maybe you're upset. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Let's take a step back. Well, when you're doing that over the phone or even in the car, some of the cues, no matter what, are lost. You can't see people. You can't see them the same way. And you can't take that minute to go, hey, before you lose your mind or before you become really upset, whether it's out of fear, anxiety, or, or anger, let's hold on, <laughs> like pause, time out. Let's step back. Maybe you, maybe you have, there's background you don't know about. I don't mm-hmm. know about, maybe you had a relative with the same disease and you're now you're freaking out. Like that is, it's gone. And so mm-hmm. of course you can't, you don't get the warning. You don't get the warning before people are just done for emotionally for whatever reason. And in that vein, I feel like whether we're curbside or not, one of the areas that I've had success with is, is opening that door for people. And, you know, especially when you can't get those nonverbal cues, but going out and saying in an ideal world, this is what I want to do. And if that's not where you're at, then this is a conversation. I want to hear what you say. If you're, if you look at me and you go, doc, it's not going to happen. Pipe dreaming. No, Um, that's okay. You can tell me that. And I'm here to have a conversation and work out a plan that's best for the two of you. So definitely during curbside, I've found like, you got to just open that door for people. But even when you're not curbside, side because some people are really good at hiding it. And I agree with you. Most people have a tell and you can go, okay, no, we're not on the same page here, especially as a veterinarian who, you know, we work with animals. So we have to pay attention to these nonverbal cues, but some people are really good. And like, don't play like poker one of those- with us. Don't play oh, poker with us. No, don't. We'll don't. pick up on it. Yeah. Have you ever had that though <laughs> where like you think you had a good conversation and then all of a sudden like every follow-up is canceled after that and you're like, what happened? I mean, um, yeah, no, some people <laughs> are really good. No, I agree. You've definitely had that. Or you you thought, great exam, great consult. Everything mm-hmm. went great. Yeah. And then an hour later they call and they're like, I hated that. Everything about that was terrible. And you're like, cool. So missed that one. Oops. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely worse. Curbs or phones, they just don't do that. They don't do that. Yeah. And I think it's 10 times harder when you first graduate because you're st- you're just mm-hmm. you're learning people's cues. You have no history with them and you don't have any history yourself. So like it's it's always challenging an emergency because you usually have no history with the person in the room. Right. But then if you don't have like this whole encyclopedia of reactions people have given me over the years that mean this, it really adds to it. And it's it is a skill and, and you know People say, oh, you know, they don't prep students for that. I don't think you can. I don't think you can. You can hang around in a clinic and watch it happen, but until you're the person that they're staring at and they're going, what are we going to do? And they're staring right at you and you're going, I'm going to go look that up. <laughs> oh, please. You know? it's, it's different. It just is. And that's, it's okay. That's part of the learning curve of, of coming out of school. And it's why you need good mentors to help you through that weird moment. Yeah. I, I, yeah, definitely the mentorship in that regard. And, and I feel like we've taken this whole other turn. Like, like now I feel like I'm like, and this is what you should know when you get out of school. Good to be add- warned. Yes. <laughs> One more thing I would add is, um, is really, especially, you know, in, in this time where things are so much more difficult, really just letting people talk and it takes a lot more time. It's a lot more inefficient, but having more of a conversation rather than like, you know, okay, I saw X, we're going to do Y. And then I want to recheck you, you know, whatever, like you had a relative that had the same disease or, you know, you want to do all these things because you love this pet, but your family member is, has cancer and you can't financially because of all these other things going on and you'll find those things out. And that then helps like build that encyclopedia of, of responses from people. And you can really tailor that to them. And that that's where you become, you know, their vet. (laughs) It all goes together. Circular conversations, right? But you know, I've gotten better at that. Through curbside, you you know what I've done, and this is it's it's a little like efficiency tip too. Is sometimes you just shove the phone under your ear and you start you start your record. Yeah, and you let them talk it out. You know, you're like, okay, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, your grandma, yeah. Wow. And, you know, in the meantime, you're like dog presented for vomiting three days ago, you know, <laughs> you're, you kind of have to like 
left side of the brain is working on record, right side of the brain is expressing sympathy for something that is completely unrelated or just trying to be a good listener. It's a little, and I, you know, sometimes you nail it and sometimes you're like, what? what? Yeah, I, that's honestly one of the things that I think in working with you, Dana, that you do really well. And oh, it's something that I admire thanks. about you because when you're talking to clients, you are both extremely patient and yet also you manage to redirect them back on the right track much sooner than <laughs> other people that I've worked with. And I don't quite understand how you do it Oof. because you do it in a way where you're supporting what they're telling you, whether it's completely unrelated or not. And somehow you just manage to swing it right back around to what you wanted to talk about in the first place. <laughs> Dude, that's like the best compliment I think I've gotten in a very long time. Thank you so much. Because sometimes you're like, you're on the phone with clients and you're like listening to them and you're quite, like, you're literally at your desk going, yep, I'm never getting off the phone with them. Oh my God, I just heard about something that happened in 1974. Like, you know, and, you know, but at the same time like like Cassie said you just kind of sometimes you have to let them talk a little bit like it's a little it's a balancing act mm -hmm. between it is enough listening and enough okay all right we're done circling back around to today you know and what's Get enough happening information now. you know where you know where where they're coming from but you know with hopefully without making your your next patient wait too too long <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it is funny because we talk about this and it seems like I know, you know, what one of the things you guys are worried about is, is, oh, this is going to be only applicable to small animal. I will say this, having externed in zoos and worked with wildlife and, you know, things like that, those keepers or those caretakers in whatever way, shape or form they come in are the same way. There's just as much evidence that they are just as bonded to those animals as if they were their dogs and cats. So yes, the tiger, if left out of the cage, will eat them. Doesn't matter to them. It is in their care and it, they're deeply worried about, you know, the, the animal. And also whether it's a zookeeper or an owner or a wildlife rehabber or, you know, a farmer. It is really interesting to me that I do think it's really important as a vet to like respect their knowledge of their animal, you know, and it's easy to, to think they're, they're talking crazy. <laughs> Sometimes they are, but they're not, they know what happened three o'clock yesterday. You don't, I mean, you weren't there. I do think there's that listening skill, like Cassie was talking about, that's so important, but yeah, you can't let them go on and on either. <laughs> <laughs> and that team approach too yes. of yeah. with the owner that it's, it, you are not, and especially, you know, as a new grad dealing with all the challenges, like you are the veterinarian making medical decisions right now, but you are not solely responsible for what happens here. Work with the owner as, as a part of the team to take care of this animal. This is the person who knows this animal better than anybody else and who is watching them and can tell you the little changes that happen at home. Did they eat? Did they not eat? Um, that's a huge, that they're full of valuable information that sometimes you have to tailor the amount of information that you truly need. But yeah, really viewing that pet owner. And of course I'm talking from small animal experience, um, but pet owner keeper, you know, whoever, whoever you're working with as, as a team member in helping you take care of that animal. And you guys are doing that together. It also means though, interestingly enough, it's not solely your, it's not solely your success if things go well, you did it as a team, right? Mm -hmm. It's not solely your responsibility if things went wrong. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. You know, this goes back to the, you know, you're a veterinarian, you're not a magical force being. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you're only capable of so much. Yes. <laughs> So we briefly mentioned clinic culture. How do you guys recommend new grads going about finding a culture that they fit in really well with? Because I feel like that's such an important factor for burnout. It is. Now, a trial and error, right? I mean, it kind of like we talked about your first job being a learning experience. I don't think you know what kind of culture you want to practice in and what works for you until you've really been in it and seen how you respond to that. And that, and it probably is going to change over time. I know for me, when I first got out, I was like, let me do all the things. And, you know, I, I don't care if I work, you know, six, seven days a week and stay late. And, you know, I'm looking up things on my day off and this is so exciting. This is so much fun. I still love being a veterinarian. I still want to give 110% when I'm in the clinic, but man, I got to go home and switch it 
off at night and I, and I have to have a general idea of when that's going to occur. And so my, what I've wanted out of a practice culture has changed over time. So I think you just got to get in it and see what works for you. And then, you know, if, if that changes then be open to that. Yeah. I think I'm going to, this is probably like disappointing advice. I'm I'm probably going to give really disappointing advice right now. So a lot of people talk about, oh, going and shadowing at the clinic two, three days. And I don't think that's bad advice if you have the time and you can do it. And it's great because like you can get, you know, if there's red flags or, you know, it's, it's worse than dating gonna, you know, you're not going to get married to your first job. You're not, it's okay. And again, so doing something like that is great, but you're not going to get the full picture in two or three days. I promise you. So if you can do something like that, where you can hang around the clinic for two, three days. And the nice thing about that is you're going to interview with typically one, maybe two people. You're probably not going to talk to everybody at the clinic and they're going to have really different perceptions of how things are going at the clinic. You know, I'd say this, don't plan on doing an hour interview. The longer that you can stay, the better to be realistic. That usually doesn't mean two or three days. It's, it's hard to do that all the time. So you can get a picture of it, but I guess I'm going to throw out what Cassie did at some point, you're going to pick the wrong job. You're, it's not going to, you know, you're going to be like, this sucks. I, it's not, it doesn't fit with me. They're too formal. They're not formal enough. They're doing more in, you know, more equine than I want to do. They're doing not as much exotics as I want to do. They're doing surgery and I don't like it, or they're doing surgery in a way I don't like, but they're comfortable. So the only thing I like mistake I've seen new grads make is maybe thinking that because their idea is so different than the clinics, sometimes you get this impression, well, I learned. And so my way is the only right way. (laughs) And it's hard because that's what you learned. And it's still not that your way is wrong, but their way is probably not wrong either. So, you know, there's a bend that you're not, you're not always super comfortable with because you don't have the experience to go, well, even though it's not gold standard, I know it's really, really good and I'm comfortable with it. It's hard. It's again, it's hard because you don't always have this again, that encyclopedia of knowledge. So, but if you go somewhere and you're not happy with things, that's okay. I think you make a really good point though, that, you know, that medicine is like this, right? That Mm -hmm. there's not one right way to do things. And so you may be in an environment where exactly what you said, Dana, you're just like, "Mm, I don't thrive in this environment. This is not, this is not my comfort level. This is not my happy place for whatever reason. It is really interesting. (laughs) Like, you know, I, I practice with, you know, exotics is pretty, you know, the exotics clinic is pretty big and there are four doctors that five doctors there now. And in some, you know, and this has happened at emergency too. Sometimes the way you practice is dramatically different than your colleagues. And, but it might be okay. Like they just do things different than you, you know, and, and I can think of any number of examples of this. Some, some of us are more comfortable putting all GI stasis rabbits on metoclopramide. Some of us are not comfortable doing that. They like cisapride. Could you medically defend both choices? Sure. Well, sometimes we get a little cranky and be like, oh, I just want it my way. Yes, we will, you know? <laughs> um, and it's probably the most dramatic on on in emergency critical care situations because, and this is, this always makes me laugh because you hand your, you can't be there 24 hours a day, right? So you hand your cases over to another doctor and they change all the orders. And then you come in the next day and change all the orders. And then they come in that next day and change all the orders. And, and you drive the technical staff crazy. You, you do. Like, Would you yes. two just communicate and make up your, your minds? Your texts are like, what are we doing? And, and <laughs> But I think the, the lesson to be learned there is probably both ways are right. And the patient still gets better, even though maybe parts of their treatment plan are getting changed every 12 hours. It doesn't truly matter. You have to, you know, you have to do what's comfortable with you. You have to reach agreements and compromises with your colleagues. And it's probably fine both ways. And sometimes it helps to like, even yeah. to see the other way to say, why don't do it that way? But apparently we're doing it that way. So <laughs> let's see what happens. And, and like you said, you know, most of the time your patient's still going to get better. Things are still going to be fine. Every choice is still medically defensible. And mm-hmm. you just learned that if you don't have access to Cisapride, and you have to, you know, metoclopramide's all you have. I know nothing about rabbits. <laughs> Both good. Maybe Don't that worry. Works. Yeah. It is really, yeah. No, I, I, and the other interesting thing about this is I'll go back to I think every new grad need, needs to work with like one veterinarian that's just like, Absolutely amazing, but super old school at the same time. Sure, and because see, they have like, some odd some, skills. You're like, do. you're doing what? 
<laughs> like for real? Like I didn't think that was a thing. Okay, we're doing this. I worked with a doc on ER and he walked like he's running around and he was a great guy, but he was very old school. He liked new stuff. He was a really interesting person because he'd be like, what's new in this world? And he he would very, he's very much keep kept up to date, but he would also, he had some like weird old school skills that just like were like mind blowing because you're, you're like, no one does that anymore, dude. No one. And I remember him walking by, I had this acute abdomen. It was a German shepherd. I'm like, this is really bad. Like this dog's vitals are all abnormal. I'm like, this dog's going to die. And I don't know why. And he casually walks by the x-rays. He's like, eh, looks like a mesenteric torsion. I'm like you can't see that on x-ray. No, you can't. You can't. They taught us in school. You can't see that on x-ray. You can't, you can't, you can't. So long story short, he was right. Um, <laughs> okay. But now I have to know, like, did the dog live? Did you get, no. did you cut the dog? Oh, we did. Say, did we... you save a mesenteric torsion? No, God, that'd be like, I'd be like, I would have probably retired at there you know, you go. Like yeah. two years out of school. <laughs> that's that's, that's it. It can't yeah, get any better. No. Um, it was a really good case though. Cause I was probably about two, three years out of school and very acute abdomen, unstable patient. I'm like, well, look, we've got to, we have to go into surgery on your dog and your dog's a really horrible anesthetic candidate. So mm. are you cool with this? And they were like, yep, we know we're you know, there's no other choice. And I opened that up and I literally was like, <laughs> I was, oh, <laughs> I was, you know, out. yeah, everything just came yeah. out. And I was like, I definitely can't save this. No. And it was funny because I called him in and I was like, dude, dude, is this, is this, is this? <laughs> Is this, is that what this is? And he talked me through actually looking at the base of the mesentery. And when you see it, you're like, oh, that's a giant knot. That's not supposed to be there. Wow. Yeah. This is not savable. Okay, cool. And you know, you move on and yeah, it was a really sad case because but the owners were well counseled well and I'm also thinking of like a mesenteric torsion case that I had it was super sad euthanasia so when I hear like it just pulls on my heartstrings (laughs) a little bit I'm like oh it's a golden retriever all the scars yes Yes. oh my gosh and he had like this little little boy was um one of you know one of his owners and he was so brave through the like I was ready to break down and he's like nodding me he's like it's okay you can go I was like no I can't oh yeah if you haven't cried during a a a euthanasia that a kid was tougher than you and you just haven't been practicing I'm saying it'll happen (laughs) it'll happen yeah you leave the room you're like hysterical there's like a seven-year-old in there who's like it's okay doc and you're like (laughs) no kidding like like you are explaining this situation to a t where he's like it's it's okay like no it's not okay yeah it happens it happens Uh, I mean how do you guys deal with or how did you deal with your first big loss after coming out of school I feel like that's I think not easy you can see not well by the the head roll and like oh gosh I still don't like thinking about it I think actually my first one was in school is that bad because like the one, like it stands out in my mind. It was clinics. It was a, um, it was a hepatic shunt patient and it was an older patient and it, it just went into status the next day Aww. and best owners. It was, and it was a little black pug. It was, oh. yep. And it, you know, it's one of those things too, where you remember their names. It's like, cause now this was, I'm going to really date myself here. This was 19 years ago. And I remember that dog's name and they're all in the owner's last name. Cause it, that's how permanent it was. And it was just upsetting. It's just upsetting because, but it's weird because you, you like, I, I look back and it was upsetting. You know, it was a, it was a rare complication of a, of a hepatic shunt surgery. And it's hard because usually those cases are something where you, the owner's all in, because if they weren't all in, and if it was, you know, if it's something that came in really bad shape and you euthanize it, not to say that they don't mean something to you because they do, but they don't stand out in your mind. It's the ones that you've been working on for days or did a big surgery on or something like that. And, you know, you remember those forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You warn every owner of every case that's even similar to like that, of the potential complication forever. It's a part of the trauma that sticks with you. And, but like I said, you never forget it. And it's funny that you say that about warning every owner of like every potential complication, because I had a dog and fortunately he lived, thank you to the great Michael Scher who, who saved him. But his thyroid was low, but he had 8 million things wrong with him. He had horrible dental disease and all this stuff. 
And we treated, I, I think it was like dental skin. It was all kinds of things wrong with him. And so we treated, but after anesthesia, he just wouldn't come back around. And, you know, fortunately this was, this was an all in owner and she went to the university and thank you, Dr. Share. He diagnosed, it was a hype. It was a post anesthetic hypothyroid crisis. And I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. What? And he, he treated that dog. And sure enough, like any dog that has even a remotely low thyroid, I'm just like, you have to know, like, we need to, we need to figure this out before surgery. Cause that one time <laughs> something bad happened. <laughs> And I think the way you deal with it though, is that you take that and you know, you, you are better for, for knowing that like every case after that, you know, you treat better mm-hmm. and, and That's you true. like, you, you're like, like you said, now every, no, I know we need to do something else first. I know that because of that, usually it's not a failure. It feels like one. I'm going to warn you. It feels really, yeah. even though there's nothing that like Cassie could have done in that case, there's nothing that I could have done to prevent that. Every case going forward, you treat, you know, a little bit more about and every case that you lose that you learn from or every case, even that is successful that you learn from adds to your, your stockpile of stuff that you can do in the future. Every patient you treat from there on out is going to be a little better off for that knowledge. Yep. I feel like we need to bring the energy back up. I do. I know. I know. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, with these dogs, like I'm thinking of a couple that, oh man, yeah. they, just, they just, and you, you know, you compartmentalize because you have to, we're very good at compartmentalization and it's, and you practice it and you get better and better and better, but there's some that, and, and it happened to me recently, actually with, um, with a dear friend's dog who we treated, you know, you probably know who I'm talking about. And oh my gosh, like we mm-hmm. treated and we treated and man, we did all the things. And finally, like on that ultrasound, it turned out there was nothing we could do. And I went over to euthanize him after, after my kids went to bed one night, I, I left and I went over and euthanized him. And the night we cremated him. I took him, um, with me when I left and I cried the whole way to the cremation place. And I cried the whole way back to my house. And then I couldn't talk to this person for like a solid week afterwards, because I was just like, I, like, I felt bad. I was like, why couldn't I save him? Even though there was nothing I could do. Um, but there's some that as good as you get at compartmentalization and you have to be good at it. Um, there's some that you just can't compartmentalize. They just stick in your brain. And, and I, you know what, I'm going to go back to accepting that, mm-hmm. go, you know, there's just some, there, there are things that respond exactly how they're supposed to. <laughs> and then they read things, the book. Yep. They read the book. You, you're going to die, you know, disease B, you're going to treat it with drug C, you're going to get outcome D. Perfect. Nailed it. Done. Moving on. And then you're going to see a very similar patient do, and you're going to do the same thing and you're going to have a completely different outcome. And it might be, and it's interesting because some are going to be better. You're going to be like, why didn't this happen last time? Why? Jeez. And you're going to have some that you're like, why isn't this working? And I, I think it goes back to, we know biology, right? Like two biological systems, they're not the same. And then when <laughs> like, you mix in pharmacology with biology and you try to make all these systems work together, they rarely respond the same mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Do you also feel like riding the, riding the waves and, and you guys, I feel, so, I'm so bad. I hope we haven't like hijacked this whole conversation. We're like, oh my gosh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you feel like riding the waves? So I feel like I get on these waves where I'm like, I am a great veterinarian. I can treat all the things. I know everything that came in the door today and I fixed it and they're all doing great. And that happens for, I don't know, like a week. And then maybe if you're lucky a week and then, and then the, and then you come down off that wave and you're like, I don't know what any of this is. Like, I feel completely incompetent. Who gave me a license? Like, (laughs) no, it's, it's, it's so true because like, again, I go back to emergency and you leave some shifts and you're like, nailed it. Got that one. Right. (laughs) That one's leaving. Got that surgery done. Perfect. Figured everything out. No diagnostic mysteries here. I am Dr. House. Everything is solved. <laughs> Sending things home. Better than a Grey's Anatomy episode. Everything lived. I'm out, you know? And then you have other ep- things where you're like, why, what, 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 what just happened? What, I love that like, you almost what? said, then you have other episodes because that is what it feels like. <laughs> it feels sometimes. like you're literally like, I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> you like, and it's, it's inevitably like something that you've treated a hundred times, a blocked cat. And you're like, everything followed the rules. Everything looks like it should be getting better or doing, you know, like it's the, the, the zebras that you encounter, which are rare. First of all, that's when you nerd out, you get like super oddly excited and you go mm-hmm. home and you're like at up at three in the morning. Thing. Yeah. Can you believe it? And yeah. your significant other is like, stop talking. Yes. <laughs> Adrenal glands are not exciting to me. <laughs> but and then, like, literally you're like, I, and it, you know what that's, but when that happens, that's when you have to have your team around you. Call your friends, call your, call your boss, call everyone on your team and be like, what other ideas you have? Cause all, everything in my lexicon has been exhausted. And this patient usually with a really typical disease is not getting better. I need new ideas. And that's that when you can find those people, that's awesome. So yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you, it's, it's just a, so important to have such a strong support network within, uh, cause you know, the, as you guys very well know, the veterinary community, both, both at the national and international level is not that big. And, you know, so I, it definitely sounds like it's very important to just have that support group with, within our community. And I mean, I know for a fact that, uh, you know, once Amelia and I are at a school, if I have a, a client come to me presenting a bird, I can easily call Amelia up and say, Hey, Amelia, I have a bird. Yeah. If you two aren't, if you two aren't texting each other in 20 years and being like, Hey, do you have a minute? I need to run a case by you. I'm going to be super disappointed. It will happen. It will happen. Like you have a few friends that you're like, dude, I just, I need everyone around me. I need a new brain. I need, it's not vet school anymore. Like it's not a test where you have to have all the information in your brain and like regurgitate it correctly. It's not like, and then, you know, you pass or fail. No, like not, it's not that anymore. So to pick up the phone and just say, give me the answer, like, tell me what I need to do next. That's okay. You're allowed to do that. Guess guess what? You're not in school. And now you can just call and say, all right, I need the answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the great thing about everyone who's a vet is we're all just dweebs. Yes, like even if I met someone one time and they called me and they were like, oh, Amelia, I have a turtle. I'm like, great. Let me tell you everything you need to know, because I'm already excited because you're talking about something that I'm interested in. You know what I mean? So we're all just going to dweeb out on each other's cases and be super excited to help everyone anyways. Yes. We'll probably provide more information on turtles than they ever want. (laughs) Marry that energy. Yes. They're like, dude, I'm just calling to find out how to euthanize it. They're like, let me tell you about the natural history and what temperatures it prefers. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, would you, would you like to do like subcarapacial sinus? Would you like to do jugular? We have like eight options. Peritoneal? Yes. Not how? really because they have a salomic cavity. <laughs> yes. That's the word. That's the word. Really like uh, in care in carapacial. Yeah. Somebody said that to me about a turtle one time. I was like, okay, back up. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Meanwhile, we're the people like we should probably get t-shirts and it'll be like, I can tell you everything you've ever wanted to know about and pick a random subject. And that's, what's fun about working at like my job right now, all the specialists, they're like, let me tell you everything I know about the thyroid gland, you know, um, or I will tell you everything you need to know about hoof health, but they, there's probably some sort of expert in every bizarre topic out there. And you could probably find them with just a little bit of work and they will be more than happy to talk to you. I, I definitely think that that's one of the main reasons why I love, uh, I love that Ned and I love our community so much because as Amelia put it, like we're, we're all just a bunch of dweebs, you know, we all just love science and we all just love animals and people and, and, you know, we're just trying to you know, do our best to help and to learn you know, as much as we, as we can. And yeah, I just, I love that. <laughs> We're all a bunch of grown, mature adults who are really smart, but still can't walk past a puppy without going, Oh my gosh, let me squish it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was, I was actually running um, a, a few days ago and there was a, a guy that was walking his really, really cute little German shepherd mixed puppy. I mean, it looked like it was only like, like 12 weeks old. Oh. And, uh, and I, I ran past and I had to stop and I looked at him and I looked at the puppy and I said, your puppy is so cute. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you can, you can say hi to him if you'd like. And I was like, oh yes, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we you said that because I was going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking today that I like, as a, it's funny that you, you talk about walking by puppies. You're talking about jogging by puppies. I am a hazard driving. Is anyone else feel like this? Because I'm driving home today and I was like, 
sandhill cranes oh my god and i was like wait wait focus on the road focus on the road dana like they'll be here all summer just because they're back now calm down like we have two that live in our backyard we oh. um we named them freaking frack and <laughs> they're super loud yes I'm little afraid for letting wrigley out when they're there not sure what's gonna happen with that i don't know that he realizes how much bigger than him they are they're big yeah my other dog's smart enough you know patches will stay away but wrigley i think will be like look friends Scotland is all about the swans and uh anytime I take my dog on a walk on the canal swans everywhere and she's like heck yeah new friend and I'm like they are not interested as they flare their wings and hiss dramatically at my three-legged 30-pound dog (laughs) mom they're trying to play Yeah, even driving past cows or horses just standing out in their field. I'm like, look, horses, look, cows. And everyone else in the car is like, yeah, cool. (laughs) And yet every veterinarian I know that we are the people on the road trip, they are like, we'll call out cow every single time. Yeah, like on the way to school, I mean, I drive past tons of cows and every day my kids point them out and I'm, it never gets old. Like, I'm never like, yes, I know there's cows. I'm like, I know, look at the cows, they're cool. Well, once again, we've gone over. <laughs> well, so for Amelia and I, we like to ask a couple of questions to our guests on our podcast. So um, if you guys wouldn't mind, uh, if we uh, ask our two questions. Yes, carry on. <laughs> yeah. So mine is always, if you could go back in time, would you do it all again? Knowing what you know now. Uh, mine's an emphatic yes. I would still do it. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know. A lot of people go to college and get to do jobs. We, I hope I don't get emotional, (laughs) but for me, this is, and it always been a calling. This is what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. I've had bad jobs, but that doesn't mean this is not where I'm supposed to be right now. This is it. This is the career I was meant to do. Highs and lows, they're going to happen in any job. I've come to accept that. Even bad jobs, that's fine. That's a bad job. That doesn't mean that this is not what I'm meant to do. 100%. Totally agree. I I mean, I could have, you took the words out of my mouth that (laughs) I love being a veterinarian and I'm, I'm not one that wanted to go uh, since I was a little kid. You know, I decided later in, in my educational career and I can't imagine doing anything else. I absolutely love it. It breaks my heart when I see some of the statistics of people saying they wouldn't go back and do it again. I go, man, we, we got to figure this out because you're clearly not experiencing what I'm experiencing here. This is great. And I hope that we can figure some of those things out and help in that regard. But absolutely. I would go back and do it again. Well, and for me, part of it is the highs are too high. Yeah. Like, to be honest, the the good, I'm not saying the bad isn't at times really, really bad. It, it is, but it's, it's like not even close. And for the very last question, if you could write a letter to your past self, to your vet school self, what would it say? Like first year, second year of vet school, what, what would you tell yourself? I feel like I would tell myself to just really stay open-minded that there's a lot of opportunities in this career and it's going to surprise you in many, many different ways. And to just be open to those possibilities and and maintain that sense of adventure of, you know, it's it's a journey. And I think for me, I think it would be not to take it personally. (laughs) That's good advice. You know what? There, some of this is, is a job and some of it's economics and it's not necessarily a reflection on myself and my choices in my career. If things don't work out, people make different choices. I need to change things. I think I took a lot of things personally at the end of school, first few years out that looking back on it, I'm like, that wasn't on me. That, that was just the way that was the way it was going to be. No, either way, part of that, you know, part of it's growing up too, not even growing up as a veterinarian, just growing up in general, but yeah, some of it's just business. I like it. I think that's really good advice. I try. Yeah, I think so many of us are just so type A that to mm-hmm. not take it personally is so hard because all of us type A people put our hearts and souls into everything, trying to make it absolutely perfect. You can't take it personally. Sometimes it's, it is just a job. Sometimes it is just money. Sometimes it, it is just that. 
I think I feel like I tell a lot of people who are pre-vet that they're like, but it's what I've wanted to do my whole life. And it's going to be this amazing career when I finally get in. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. It is going to be an amazing career. And I would not do anything differently, even if I had the chance. But you have to know, like, there's some days you're going to wake up and it's still going to be a job. And that doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. It doesn't mean, you know, you made a made a poor life choice here. It just means either that day or that situation. It's a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be sunshine and rainbows all the time. So, you know, either get through that bad day or that bad week, or if you're in a bad situation, then change it. I think that's some solid advice for, <laughs> yeah. for everyone. Easier said than done, yes. but yes, that's what I would say. All right, that's a wrap on our two-episode discussion featuring myself, Dr. Dana Barbel, and vet students Amelia and Kaitla. Now remember, Amelia and Kaitla also have a podcast called Vet the Unexpected, where they discuss alternative careers in veterinary medicine, so definitely remember to check that out when you get a chance. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on Vetfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.